we didn't realise how big we were out there until we got there, of course. I mean, we'd walk into the restaurants and the whole restaurant would stand up and applaud us and our string quartets playing our music. Um, it was just absolutely silly. But, you know, it was competitive. I'd be foolish not to say that, you know, we always tried to outdo each other. You know, but it was there was that camaraderie there. Yeah, you know, that we were going through the same thing together, you know. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate weekly classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks, as always, for hitting play. Now, there was a bit of excitement in Vintage Rock Pod Towers this week, although that makes it sound very grandiose, doesn't it? Anyway, rock legends Uriah Heep had to reschedule their 50th anniversary UK tour that was meant to be 2020. It had already been rescheduled to this year, 2021. But on Wednesday, it was announced it would have to be moved back to 2022, sadly. Now, I was in touch with Heap's manager and managed to bag myself an exclusive interview on the Wednesday afternoon with none other than the legend himself, the sole surviving member of the original band, guitarist Mick Box. Charming, upbeat as ever. He started and ended the interview with a happy days, mate, and a big smile as well. What I did was I put out a short clip on socials on the Wednesday afternoon, which was picked up by rock news outlet Brave Words within the hour. Then the official Uriah Heap page launched the full interview on video on their official channels on Saturday, getting more than 1,000 thumbs up likes on their Facebook page, which is pretty nice, isn't it? So with no further ado, here it is, the exclusive interview with the great man himself, our exclusive interview with Mick Box from Uriah Heap. Happy days, mate. Happy days. Happy Here we days. are. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are, indeed. Through life, like we all are. It's all we can do, isn't it? It's all we can do right now. And speaking yes, of what we're doing right now, the, we're talking to you now on Wednesday. Um, news has just broken on your official channels that the rescheduled Uriah Heap 50 tour of the UK is going to have to be rescheduled again to 2022. I know. It's an absolute nightmare, mate. You know, um, we've been knocked sideways with everything. You know, we had a whole year's touring to celebrate our 50th anniversary. And we haven't done any of it. <laughs> yeah, it's just tough. It's tough going, I have to say. But, you know, um, eventually we'll get there. And then when we do celebrate it, I'm sure everyone will go mad and crazy. <laughs> I know we will. Yes, absolutely. I'm so... Uh, so, so what have you got lined up for this um, Uriah Heap 50 tour then? I mean, I know it's, it's been pushed back again, but what, what are fans going to expect from it? Well, we had a whole, whole thing lined up, um, whereas we're going into pre-production, we had some... Um, stage set things um, organised, you know, I think possibly those companies are now out of business. Um, so we might have to start again. But, you know, we had a, a whole show where it was just your eye heat for a couple of hours. And, um, you know, it was looking to be a really, really good um, tour. Because um, it's the first time we've actually done this or that type of thing, you know, with all the production. But um, not to be, my friend, you know, we'll have to just postpone it and see where we can fit it all in next year. Absolutely, and we all look forward to seeing that. So let's go back then to, to 1970, when Very Heavy, Very Humble came out. I mean, you were seen as the forefront of, of, of the movement, weren't you? The heavy rock movement, the heavy metal movement, the hard rock, that sort of stuff, with the likes of Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. And What was it like around that time then, when you were, when you were a part of that movement moving forward? Well, it was a very, very uh, vibrant time, I have to say, very creative, vibrant time, because we were coming out of an era of um, late 60s of... of Bands being all in suits and doing little dance moves and uh, little combos behind them. Um, you know, it was all very nice and polite and sweet and lovely. You know, some great songs came out of that. But then we come out as almost a rebellion with the long hair and uh, uh, it wasn't like a Marshall stack on your shoes, <laughs> you know, which I thought was brilliant until I found out everybody else got them. So I wasn't as tall 
as I thought I was going to be. And it was just a creative time, you know. We just, you know, we 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 bought, you know, Marshall stacks for real, you know, um, with 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 bigger everything was bigger, better, louder, and um, it was that whole movement that was going on at the time. It, it was a fantastic time, I have to say. And of course, with record companies, you signed for uh, with a record company for six or seven albums, you know. So you you grew with the label, the label grew with you, you know. So there was, a, you know, they allowed you to to take your music wherever you wanted. There was nobody dictating anything, you know. Um, which was, I think, which is why so much of that music has stood the test of time and people still like hearing now, you know, even in the library and in their homes. Absolutely, yeah. And you talk about the movement there and the, the time. And what was it like within joining the scene then? Because I spoke to uh, Steve Diggle from the Buzzcocks and he says it was, it was great camaraderie amongst the punks of that time, the Pistols and the Clash and that. And then there's all the mods. I spoke to Kenny Jones and he says the mods were all a big one, big happy family. So what was it like um, with, with the hard rock movement that was coming through, the rebellious time? It was pretty much the same as that. I have to admit, I got great respect between bands. Um, but, you know, it was competitive. I'd be um, foolish not to say that, you know. We always tried to outdo each other. You know, but it was there was that camaraderie there. Yeah, you know, that we were going through the same thing together. You know, we almost united in as much as we were writing the new 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 book, if you like. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> a new book of where the music goes, you know. So, uh, and and I think that that, that was it, that's it was such a vibrant time with, with fashion. I mean, coming out of um, the late sixties into the seventies, where all these bands were happening, you know, really there was only fashion, music, and sport that people got involved in. You know, uh, nowadays there's, there's so many diversions. You, know, you you can do do more than that on your phone. Yeah. <laughs> but back then, that's what it was like. You know, and they were all intrinsically linked. You know, the footballers were looking like rock stars and and whatever. You know, it was it was great. It was a great time. Yeah, yeah, loved it. Brilliant. And in terms of, um, you mentioned a bit of competitive edge as well amongst the bands. I mean, one thing that stood you out amongst those others, I mean, the others had Ozzy, they had Gillen, they had, I don't know, Plant, that sort of stuff. Whereas you guys, David was brilliant frontman, but you had the harmonies as well, didn't you? Yeah, I think that was very important for Heat because we always had five strong singers. So the harmony became an important trademark for the band, as much as the Hammond organ and as much as my guitar wah-wah solos, you know. Um, it kind of, um, th- they were the things that we, we tried on. In fact, if I try and um, explain that a little better, if you took a song into the band and we applied all those things, it became heat very quickly. <laughs> 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 if you know what I mean, you know, you can have something quite off the wall, but take it into the band and put all those elements in, all those trademarks in, and suddenly it's heap again, you know. It's got that definite sound of the band. And another definite sound of the band was, was David Byron. He was an incredible frontman. He kind of had it all, didn't he? I mean, to you, sum, sum up David, what, did, what, what made him so special? Well, number one, he had the most marvellous voice, um, a fantastic voice. And um, he, David was the, one of these vocalists that lived inside a song. You know, he, does, he wasn't just a vehicle for it, you know. And I think that's where it comes through in the grooves. It comes through when people hear his voice. Um, it, there was a a, a, a deep honesty there that, that just springs out of, the, out of everything, you know, he, he was just wonderful. And of course, he had a great range, vocal range, you know, um, you get up really high too, you know, and do the screaming like was, was very important in those days. Yes, of course. <laughs> and uh, he also had charisma, you know, um, by the bucket load, you know, I always said, you know, if you were in the Albert Hall, it was a full up and David came in one of the exits, you'll know he was there. <laughs> you know, he had that sort of charisma, you know. In in the end, a lot of that charisma was his downfall, I believe, you know, because you couldn't leave it on stage. You had to have it everywhere. And um, 
it's not a healthy thing. No, not at all. And, and David had to leave the band. But there was a point, wasn't there, in the, in the 80s when you tried to reconcile with David, didn't you, and try and get him back into into Heat, but it just wasn't happening. Yeah, I mean, Trevor Bowl with myself, we went you know, we went down to his house and, and, and um, I said, look to him, David, I've got the record contracts, I've got all the gear, I've got all the work, I've got everything we possibly need. Let's get the strength back to where it was in Spice prior to Heat, yeah. you know, with you and me doing the writing and everything. And Trevor was on board and so that was a, a good thing. But we went in there and... and I saw him in his house and he had a lot of people in there and he had like two or three managers blowing smoke up his backside and and a lot of drinking was happening and not a clear thinking, yeah. <laughs> I have to say. And um, in the end, he, he was just so immersed in his solo project that he, you know, um, I think he was putting together Rough Diamond at the time. He was so immersed in all that that he, he couldn't see any other way to go other than the way he went, you know. In fact, uh, you know, I, I can remember vividly sitting outside in the car outside the house with, with Trevor, and we just looked at him and went, what happened? We went in with all these great ideas, all these great offers and everything to, to launch him back to where he should be. It's a real shame, a real shame, because, you know, we would have we would have gone on to great things for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. And you mentioned managers there. I've heard you in another interview say that maybe if the managers had looked after the, the band members a little bit better in those early days, because they definitely flogged you, didn't they? It was two albums a year. It was nine months touring. Then perhaps certain things wouldn't have happened yeah. to certain members. Um, you know, there was no attention given to anybody's private yeah. life at all. I mean, I could understand it to a degree because when we first got launched, I mean, Jerry Brown, our manager at the time. He um, put his money where his mouth was. He got us all the ads, you know, full-page ads in all the magazines and, and Melody Makers and NME and Sounds and all the rest of them. You know, it's, it's marvellous. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then, obviously, he wants wants his money paid back. You know, he bought us all the equipment, you know, and, and there comes a time when you've got to pay that back. And um, we did over a number of years. But then when we, we paid back tenfold, it's time to just ease off a little bit. But he didn't. He just kept pushing, 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 pushing. And then the wheels were falling off, you know, um, you, you can't go with that sort of pressure uh, yeah. without something happening, and, and it did. But you know, there's two ways of thinking it as well. But also, back then, anybody had any dependency on anything, there wasn't a priory to go to. There wasn't anything other than your local doctor. So there was no backup for any of that or no information that you could go and green out somewhere to try and put it right. You know, So it was a difficult time all around. But I just feel that if we had more time to to have home life, then um, that balance would, would, would be beneficial to everyone. I think. But it Sadly. wasn't a bit. Sadly not. And um, touring was a, was a huge part of Uriah Heap and still is pretty much, isn't it? And you guys, you're always on the road. And, and is that something you still love doing? Well, when we're allowed to, obviously. <laughs> well, well, you know, up to, up to the COVID thing, um, you know, we were playing in 62 countries around the world. So, yeah, it was very much um, what we do you know, um, and where we belong and, and what we'd like to do. Yeah. Um, it just so happens that, you know, this is just throwing a big curveball to everyone and uh, we have to deal with it how we can deal with it. So at the moment, I'm sitting at home writing songs with Phil Lands and our keyboard player and uh, FaceTiming and Skyping yeah. and, and, and Zooming and uh, all the things that are available to actually, you know, liaise together on songs. And, and I have to say some of it's really great stuff, you know, but, you know, if I give you an example, writing a song, for instance, you know, um, where we'd probably write it in a day if we were both in the same room. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, this is taking a week, two weeks or yeah. more, you know. Emails going flying around. Go here, I've got to go there and all that stuff. I've got to walk the dog, I've got to <laughs> And, uh, you know, you get taken away from it, you know. But, um, yeah, if we were in the same room, we'd move a lot faster. And just touching on, on the touring then, I mean, if we go back a few years, I mean, you toured America a lot, didn't you? But you had some 
interesting support act, should we say, interesting is probably the best word, the likes of Earth, Wind and Fire. I mean, how, how on earth did that come about? And it sounds so odd now, doesn't it? Well, it was Earth, Wind and Fire. I think, I think it was ZZ Top, Earth, Wind and Fire and, and Uriah Heap. I think it was. Yeah. And, um, well, we, we were doing, going gate guns out there. You know, we were doing, um, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 seats a night all over the place, yeah. you know, which is marvellous. And um, they were good bills. But, you know, getting back to your point with Earth, Wind and Fire, in those days, music was just good or bad. It wasn't pigeonholed at that point. Mm-hmm. It was only later on when they started putting bands like us in heavy metal or hard rock and, yeah. and this in there and that in soul and that, 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 that promoters then started only booking bands of that genre. Yeah. Uh, which is a shame, really, because, you know, we turned on a lot of Earth, Wind & Fire fans, you know, with our music and vice versa, yeah. you know, and that's the way your audience grows. You know, if you just keep playing to the converted all the time, it can't grow as much. If you know what I mean. <laughs> and you mentioned ZZ Top there. I mean, you, you helped to push some some now legendary bands forward, didn't you? So the likes of ZZ Top and Rush and and people like that that kind of toured with you, didn't they? Yeah, Rush and Kiss and yeah, many, many, many of them, mate. Yeah, it was all, all good. Yeah, it was all good. You know, um, it was great to tour with all their bands, and it was a great time. You know, again, it was very vibrant, very new, and uh, and uh, I don't even think the merchandising thing was happening at the time. You know, that's how, okay. how far back we're going, you know. And then somebody went light bulb moment. <laughs> <laughs> Some money to be made, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, none of that was happening at that time. You know, we were just out there playing, you know. <laughs> Brilliant. And then um, just one last touring thing. I mean, I remember you describing yourself as being the Indiana Jones of rock and roll, no stone left unturned. And, and you were the first group over to Russia, weren't you? The first Western group over to Russia, although Bon Jovi likes to claim otherwise. Yeah, it was but... amazing because we, we had a saying in the, in the band back in the 70s that, you know, if, if the people couldn't come to the music, we'll take the music to the people. And so while the bands were just doing the mainland Europe and, and America and Canada, we were going out to all the Eastern Bloc countries. We were going to East yeah. Berlin. We were going to Bulgaria. We were going to um, um, Czechoslovakia before it became the Czech Republic and Slovakia. We were going to all those places in Hungary. And we had a, a Hungarian promoter called Laszlo Hedigus, Hegedus, so I couldn't say that, Laszlo Hegedus, who took us out to all those places. And um, he said, we're going to have to get you in Russia. You might know how big you got. We go, yeah, yeah. What I've been told at school about Russians, we'll never go there, you know let alone to, to um, play our music. And um, lo and behold, he, 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 every year he kept um, asking them and he got back the answer, niet, niet, niet. <laughs> and then one time it went, yes. And we went, oh, wow. Um, and then Glasnost were formed and they sent over an official document that I've got up on my wall in the office, um, inviting us over to be the first Western rock band. We all went over there to Moscow, not knowing what to expect. Yeah, of course. And it was just amazing. You know, you just could not believe it. We paid 180,000 people over a 10-day period, you know, and they were coming in from all all over the place in Russia to get in. But, you know, to travel, they had to apply for a passport to travel within the country <laughs> to get there. So it was just an amazing time. I mean, it was really silly because we didn't realise how big we were out there until we got there, of course, because uh, we had no, no way of, you know, judging that. And uh, but it was just absolutely amazing. I mean, we'd walk into restaurants and the whole restaurant would stand up and applaud us and have string quartets playing our music. Um, it was just absolutely silly, silly stuff. But, you know, amazing that even with all that communist regime, that uh, music still got through. You know, those, those, those fans were saving up for two months 
uh, money to buy one album. They bought your album. You know, uh, it's just absolutely amazing. And at the risk of being sent to Siberia for being caught listening to it too. So, you know, there was there was a big price to pay, but the music got through every time. Absolutely, and it stuck around as well, hasn't it? I mean, classic rock, um, it, it lives on, doesn't it? In especially in Eastern Europe and and places like that. I've, I've spoke to Jolyn Turner from from Rainbow Deep Purple days, and he's, he's he kind of lives over there now. And he says that the bands are still so highly thought of and regarded as the legends that you are. It's, it's different to the UK or the US that are always looking for the new and the next thing. Yeah, I think there's especially in Europe, there's a lot of loyalty in the business as well as through the fans as well. Yeah. Um, whereas in other territories, they may be looking at the next new thing or, uh, rather than any of those heritage. So, yeah, 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 he's absolutely right, Joe. Good man, Joe. Well, I did um, a thing with him, me and Bernie. We did Rock Meets Classic with a big classic, uh, big, big orchestra. And Joe was one of the artists, smoked along with us, and we got on with our house on fire. Yeah, him and his wife, Maya, and the lovely people. Yes. Brilliant. Good stuff. And just, um, just touching um, on, on recent events, I mean, sadly, you've lost friends and, and former colleagues along the way, haven't you? And recently, um, in the last few months, we've, we've lost Ken and, and Lee as well. I mean, how does how does that affect you and your outlook on, on, on life? Well, first and foremost, you know, it's sad and it's like, um, you know, being punched in the face, you know, 30 times by Mike Tyson. <laughs> you know, you're actually stunned by it all, really. I mean... Lee, I could understand because he'd been fighting his particular cancer and stuff and his, and his illness for five years or so, you know. And so every time I saw him, I saw the progression not being good. Um, so it wasn't quite such a shock, even though when it still comes, it's a big shock, you know. Because I saw him the week before in his home uh, prior to him passing away. And, um, and you know, chatting to him about all the old things, you know, you can see them come to life when we talk about it, you swap the old stories and the, and the jokes and the camaraderie we had and we were like brothers running all the world together, you know, it was marvellous. And then I, I was playing him some of the stuff I'd been writing and he came to life again, you know, singing away in the bed, you know, and it was just like from walking in to this person who's not very well to suddenly this vibrant person who was just immersed in everything was heap. It was lovely, yeah, and he was, he was a good man. But then someone like Ken, I had no idea. I think I was on the phone to our cable player, Phil Lanzer, at the time, and he said, you're not going to believe this, I just got a message to Ken's pastor. I said, oh, wow. Um, you know, and, and over the years, I have to say, there's been those sort of messages um, throughout all the time, you know. Um, I mean, I've been, I think, in America, I think, for about a year, I everybody thought I was dead, you know. <laughs> No, still alive. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, I, I phoned up um, Steve Weltman, his manager, and, and who kindly told me uh, yeah. what had gone on, you know, and it was just a complete shock, you know, it was just shock horror. But, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, how I feel now is that, you know, being the only one still here from the classic lineup, you know, I just keep waving the flag, you know, and, and by, by keeping things going and doing new material, it also keeps all the music that those great musicians left behind yes. um, very vibrant too because so, we play a lot of them on stage too, you know. Um, so we'll always play that. So it just keeps everything alive for everybody, really, um, in terms of music, at least. Absolutely. And you spoke a, a lot about the, the new music and, and the different way that you're working now, and it's taking a little bit longer. In terms of of, of an album, are you looking at putting out a new album at some point? Is that what this is aiming towards? Or are you just yeah. doing what seems to be the thing now where it's just tracks and see what happens? Plan to go in um, this February. I think it was, uh, and then it went to April. Then it went to September, and it could still be September, for we know. <laughs> um, but you know, we had an, uh, we got an American producer, 
and um, Jay, and, and for him to come over you know, that two weeks, you know, we had to go in a hotel, and when he gets back, the same thing, and he just, I think we can handle that, you know. So um, then there was the possibility of booking it all, and then just one of us go down with something, bam, you know, it, it's all off again, you know. Um, but you still have to pay the bill for the studio, you know. So we're we're, we're treading gingerly, one might say. <laughs> the deal was there. We're ready to go. Um, it's just a matter of just slotted it in where we can. And of course, with these these dates moving from the UK now, there's also another slot there to go and record something and try and make use of that that time. Um, but yes, um, we'll definitely do an album. You know, we're we're all writing towards that now. I know Russ has been writing. I know Dave has been writing. I know me and Phil have been writing. So brilliant. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Mick. I could speak all day, but uh, I know we've all got things to do. Um, so thank you so much, and we wish you the best of luck with the tour and everything, and we hope that new music comes out soon. All right, mate. Happy days. Take care, mate. And what a top bloke he is. Mick Box there, Uriah Heap legend. If you want to check out the newly rearranged dates for the UK tour, then head to the Vintage Rock Pod Facebook page. I've shared the new dates on a post on there. And you can also see that interview too. Mick with the gold discs on the wall behind him looking really cool. Just go to Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube. Check out our YouTube channel. And remember to hit subscribe on there as well. And you'll be able to see all the other videos with interviews we've done too. Right now, regular listeners know what's coming next. It's where I give you my favourite five songs from the person I've just interviewed. It's always tricky trying to narrow down to just five, and with a band like Uriah Heep and 50 years to call upon, it's certainly not easy. If you're a big fan of the band, I'm sure you'll have your own thoughts, but if you're new to the group, then hopefully these five will give you a good starting place to explore the band's back catalogue. So here we go, the top five Uriah Heep songs according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is a song from their second album, Salisbury, written and sung by Ken Hensley because frontman David Byron didn't like the song, apparently. Well, I did, and so did many others, thankfully, and it became a big hit going top ten around Europe. It's a poetic track that tells us that evil cannot be overcome by evil itself, and it's got a ah, ah, ah bit in it that just absolutely gets stuck in your head. And number five is Lady in Black. For my choice at number four, it's another Ken Hensley written number from 1973's Sweet Freedom album. It's a proper 70s rock and roll track, this. The easygoing intro with the bass and keys brings us in gently. Then we get the anthemic rock feel. The brilliant refrain of, I was stealing when I should have been buying, sticks with you for a long time. And number four is Stealing. My number three song is the opening track on their debut album, Very Heavy, Very Humble. It's become an absolute anthem, but it led one reviewer in 1970 to say, if this group makes it, I'll have to commit suicide. From the first note, you know you don't want to hear any more. Very crass thing to say indeed, and finally proved so, so wrong too. This song and the album put the band on a path to greatness from which they haven't looked back. And number three is Gypsy. Number two comes from the album Demons and Wizards and remains the group's biggest hit in the US. It was a major success across Europe too. It's a rip-roaring two and a half minutes. And number two is Easy Living. And at number one is the third track on the 1971 album Look At Yourself. This showcases the band's incredible musicianship with the band as strong as ever in all its sections. It's contributions as well from Manfred Mann himself. It's a 70s anthem which is still a major part of the band's set list today. The number one Uriah Heep song according to Vintage Rock Pod is the brilliant July Morning. 
July morning, brilliant song, and the people of Bulgaria have taken it to their psyche too. Every year, just before dawn on July the 1st, thousands of people flock down to the Red Sea to celebrate the rising of the sun. It's a huge celebration, and in fact, the band actually played during the celebrations live in 2012 too. Incredible stuff. The band are seen as a real classic group here in the UK and across North America, but across Europe, they are like gods. They're worshipped wherever they go. They still like headline festivals and major venues across some of Europe's biggest cities. It's incredible. Anyway, those are my thoughts, the best five Uriah Heap songs. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that list. Where do you agree? Where do you disagree? Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com or message me on the socials. Just search for Vintage Rock pod on all the usual places now i like how this podcast leads people to check out bands or artists they've either not heard before or or not in a while now joseph was in touch last week saying he listened to greg kin's music after the show and remarked that happy man was indeed a fun song Uh, mary lynn messaged to say she's always been a big fan of greg and used to listen to him every morning while brian gray on facebook said his young son loves the breakup song because brian used to play it all the time nice Oh, and if you've got Spotify as well and you're looking for a new playlist filled with great tracks, then search for Vintage Rock Pod Top 5s on there. It's got every song that I've recommended so far on the series, which is well over 100 tracks, I think. It's been compiled for you by one of my listeners, so amazing work. Get yourselves onto Spotify, search for Vintage Rock Pod Top 5s and follow it too. It gets updated pretty much weekly. Uh, one more thing, I'm looking into the format of this show. From a couple of nice reviews, a little trend has appeared that's got me thinking whether I should adapt the format slightly or majorly, or, or not at all, to be honest. I'd like your feedback, though, seeing as though you're the one that actually listens to the show every week. Now, if you go to Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook or Twitter, I've pinned a post to the top of each of those platforms. Please let me know your thoughts. There's a small survey on there. It's just tick boxes and drop-down op- options. It's not difficult. You don't have to sit there typing reams and reams out. You can do it on your phone dead easily. should only take you a couple of minutes. It would be really, really, really fantastic if you could do that before I start making any changes to the show or the show structure. Right now, time to catch up with our good friend Tim Peacock. He's an author and a music journalist as well with Universal Music and Record Collector magazine. And he's here to give us a roundup of this week's classic rock news. And it's that time of the show where we get to find out what's been going on in the classic rock world. And the only way we can do that is by speaking to a man who knows more than the rest of us. Yes, Tim Peacock from YouDiscoverMusic.com and Record Collector magazine. Hi, Tim. Hi, Paul. Thanks very much for the big up there. (laughs) (laughs) You deserve it. You deserve it. So what have you got lined up for us this week then in the the classic rock news, Tim? Okay, Paul. Well, I've got three things lined up as usual. Actually, there's no deaths or anything. They're all quite positive this evening which is good and hopefully they're all things which might be of interest to pass the time for vintage rock pod listeners as well hopefully (laughs) so let's shall we kick off go for it first one tonight is uh, about uh, neil young uh neil young is the latest uh, he's the guest on rolling stones music now podcast um which is quite a star study thing or it's quite an in-depth thing anyway it's a 45 minute podcast they've been doing this for a little while now and basically they have it's i think it's four of their journalists along with the host who's called brian hyatt and they will be discussing the highlights of Neil Young's Archives, Volume 2, uh, 1972 to 76. Um, there's a lot of goodies in here, uh, rare goodies in here. It's described as his che- uh, treasure chest. Um, <laughs> and they also talk about on the podcast, they talk about the future of his archival releases and how he feels he's relevant to the current rock scene. So there's quite a lot of interesting stuff in there. There's unheard treasures like... Uh, there's a Crazy Horse version of Ride My Llama, which it was on the uh, Russ Never Sleeps album. Um, 
but there's an acoustic version of it on that on that record. Uh, there's legendary late night jam with Joni Mitchell and a song called Raised on Robbery. Um, and there's a song called LA Girls and Ocean Boys, which apparently includes part of or some fragments of Danger Bird, which was included on his album Zoomer. I know Danger Bird, but I've never heard this track. So sounds like it's pretty interesting. Um, it's available on Rolling Stone's own website, and also you can go on to iTunes or Spotify. Uh, to hear the entire episode, it's roughly 45 minutes. Um, so it could be an interesting one for Neil Young fans like myself. Anyway, there be he's got so much stuff in the archives there. Do, do you know much of Neil, Neil Young's stuff? Have you have you gone into any of that at all, Paul? No, I was never a huge fan of, of the folk kind of rock scene. Obviously, mm. know his big songs, Harvest, and all mm. that sort of things mm. on the album. But uh, I was never never a huge fan of, of Neil Young. I don't know if that's blasphemous to say, especially with, with all my, my listeners from Canada. <laughs> the, 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 listen, I think 9% of my audience is from Canada, so I apologise profusely for saying uh, well, that. But well, uh, well, wasn't he one of the, the, the latest artists to sell his back catalogue recently? I'm not sure if he's done that or not. The latest person to do that is Paul Simon yesterday. He apparently has sold his entire mm. catalogue to Sony, I believe it is. Uh, and Bob Dylan, so it seems to have kicked the, the um, kind of a trend off with that, if Absolutely. you like. What you got for us next, then, Tim? Okay, mate. Well, from one uh, cult hero to another man with a huge cult following, Frank Zappa. Um, uh, there's a resource out here called, I think it's called Cobuz, I think. Apologies to the listeners if I have this wrong. It's Q-O-B-U-Z. It's a music lover's high-res streaming and download provider. Um, they've partnered with, um, well, Universal Music and Zappa Records, to provide dozens of Frank Zappa albums for the first time in high-res audio. So um, I'll tell you a little bit about Cobuz. It's, uh, apparently it was founded in Paris 2007. It's the world's first high-res music streaming service and a pioneer in high-quality sound. But they also have like lots of editorial content on that and so forth. And certainly, I mean, Zappa is one of those people, you know, people really do like to go into the minutiae. I mean that in the most complimentary way. I mean, he's a fascinating back catalog. Um, they say that they will have 29 albums of, of 29 Zappa albums spanning his entire career will be going live over a period of time. It's a five week campaign. It will span a series of drops between now and May the 7th. Um, 29 titles in all. The first titles which are going live on Kobo's, the first Zappa titles are absolutely free. Burnt Weenie Sandwich, Bongo Fury, Chicago 78, Zappa in New York, orchestral favourites, Halloween 81, Halloween 81 highlights, and uh, the Mother's 1970 box set. And I can certainly say, from having dealt with some press on a couple of these, the Halloween 81 and the Mother's 1970 box set, they're an absolute treasure trove of stuff. If you're a Zappa fan, I imagine this really is very good news indeed. Absolutely. Sounds very good. Very good indeed. So what have you got last for us then, Tim, on the news this week? Okay, finally this week, Paul, we have something for, for us all to read. Um, there's a new Alice Cooper book, which is due out in May. Um, it's May 28th. It's called Alice Cooper in the 1970s. Um, it's being published mm. by some people called Sonic Bond, who look quite good, actually. I noticed they're doing a lot of kind of career... Uh, retrospectives of different people that they have there. If you have a look at their website, there's quite a few different types of things on there. And uh, anyway, this latest one, it's been written by a guy called Chris Sutton, who's a, apparently a British-based fan of Alice Cooper's. Um, it promises the story of Alice Cooper, the band, and the solo performer from the early years through to the decadent end of the 1970s, according to this. Advanced PR says, quote, it is the first book to offer a fully rounded approach to the Cooper phenomenon and give full credit to the musicians. 
And by that, he says that he will be drawing upon interviews from key figures who work, who worked with Cooper, Michael Bruce, Dennis Dunaway, Neil Smith, uh, some of the early people. And he, they say it will take in all of the albums and singles from Don't Blow Your Mind um, from to From the Inside are examined in detail along with archival releases and apparently tracks that didn't make the album. So it does sound pretty comprehensive. Anyway. Absolutely. So that is anyway, Alice Cooper in the 1970s. It's out on May 28th. Sonic Bond Publishing. There you go. Perfect. Thank you very much, Tim. You're keeping us all busy. We've got something to listen to. We've got some music and something to read as well. It's good to see. <laughs> it's what we need in lockdown, isn't it, Paul, anyway? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Absolutely. It's been a pleasure chatting with you again as usual, Tim. Take care. Thanks as much as always, mate. Okay, bye-bye. And that's it for another packed episode. If this is the first time you've listened, then please hit the follow or subscribe button to make sure you don't miss these future episodes. They come out every Monday morning with big-name interviews, news and nostalgia to fill all your classic rock needs. Take a scroll back and see some of the big-name guests we've had on so far. Uh, Please give us a follow or a like on social media too. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or YouTube. And don't forget to sign up to be a VRP VIP at VintageRockPod.com. Tell your friends, your family, neighbours, colleagues, anyone really, just to get listening. Until episode 24, then remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.